I want to invite you now, if you will, into the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. So if maybe this is your first time opening a Bible, don't be afraid of the table of contents. But if you don't have a Bible or a smartphone to get it, uh, our ushers want to put one into your hands. And so if you would just raise your hand and hold it there, uh, one of our ushers will be right there as soon as they can, and they will put a Bible into your hands. For this for us, this is a very tangible way in which we experience the, the declaration of, of God's Word that is the Bible in a group of people. It, it isn't something where you just sit back and you're entertained as someone kind of just pretends to be the expert on the Bible, but instead for us, this is a tangible and actual and visible way in which we as a group of people open up the Bible together and then begin to allow it to speak to us. As you'll hear me say on a regular basis, when you open the Bible, it begins to open you. And so here is what we want to do. I want to invite you to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and I, I, I want to invite you even for the next possibly 12 weeks right up towards Easter to spend your time together with the life of this church in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want to spend this morning reading the introduction here, the verse 11 verses. I want to introduce you to the author. I want to maybe plot a, a course for our time together. And I want to give you some encouragement and some warnings about what we'll see in this particular book. And I want to do so in a way that is, it is faithful to the, the tone and the intent of this particular book. So this is, if, if you have any familiarity with the Bible, you might be kind of bracing yourself as you reach for the book of Ecclesiastes. Or maybe if you do have any familiarity with the Bible, you're probably wondering like, oh, that's that book I've never read before, maybe. It's not a, it's not a, a, a well-read book. It's, it's a fairly neglected book. It finds itself in the, in the tradition of what the Bible calls wisdom literature. So there's three different significant sections of the Old Testament. That is the Hebrew Bible. And you'll hear some of your study Bibles, I know we've talked about this before, you'll see the three letters T-N-K, or the Tanakh. That is the Torah, the Nabi'im, and Ketivim. That is the Torah, the law, we call it the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is the, the five standards, or the law that's laid out, understanding who God is, and, and the way that He is commanded and expected his people to look in the world. But then after that, you'll see the prophets. So we've spent time in the prophets before. You've got major prophets, big ones like Isaiah and Jeremiah. We've been in the last few particular weeks. And then the minor prophets, smaller ones like the book of Hosea, where we were last year. And as is our custom, we want to dig through different texts of scripture, kind of, kind of pull a book apart uh, one at a time from Old Testament to New Testament. And, and we want to do so in Ecclesiastes, the third section of the Old Testament categories of books called the writings, specifically what we call the section, a subset of writings, wisdom literature. That for us is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, more literally depending on what your Bible translation calls it. These are the five books of the Bible known as wisdom literature. I, I'll at least say um, most of the things that most people quote or would kind of turn into, I don't know, we, we call it kind of like bumper sticker theology sometimes, or maybe, maybe you feel like your, your grandmother knits things and she knits verses, you probably have a little snippet of one of these five books somewhere, this wisdom literature, this little bitty, little nuggets, little things that, that often quoted out of context, but also some of them are kind of meant to stand alone and they're meant to be a, a word of wisdom, specifically godly wisdom. Marking what I think we find here at least a couple of different types of wisdom. Right? There's the kind of wisdom that just comes from bad decisions. 
right? There's the kind of wise person that you know. Have you met this person? And, and they like, they've just, they've just done a lot of bad stuff. And they're kind of the self-proclaimed expert when they walk in the room, and they tend to like show their resume by like telling you all of the awful things they've done. And, and, and there's a sense in which that kind of wisdom is just like, man, I, I hope you'll learn from my mistakes. There's another kind of wisdom that, that God grants. We believe it's a godly wisdom. We would say even things that there's a sense in which like all wisdom is God's wisdom, that if, if there's a truth in it, then ultimately that truth belongs to God and points to himself. It points to the way that he reveals his nature to us. And the author of this book has a healthy dose of both, both the God-given sense of wisdom and also the kind of wisdom that almost all of Ecclesiastes is based on, a life full of bad decisions. The man who writes this, we believe, is a man by the name of Solomon. Solomon being the son of King David. In fact, if you just read the first verse with me before you read the first 11 together, you'll begin to get a, a, a picture of this. It says, the words of the preacher or teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, he doesn't name himself, and we'll talk for the next couple of weeks why that is, why he kind of, kind of minimizes his own sense of identity. But we seem to get a picture here that there's only one son of David that became a king in Jerusalem, and it's Solomon. In fact, Solomon is responsible for many different psalms that were written. He's responsible for the majority of the book of Proverbs, and he's responsible for the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs each one written as kind of a, a godly wisdom given to people. So let's read together what this man, presumably, probably toward the end of his life, as he reflected on his own life, has to share with you and me. And as we do, you'll begin to realize this has a completely different tone than any other book of the Bible. And I think that it calls us to a different way of understanding God. Here we go, beginning in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been. It's been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor there will be any remembrance of latter, later things. Yet to be among those who come after. 
May this become for us the wisdom of God imparted to one another. I thought I came to worship to be encouraged, right? Come on, Jonathan, I invited my friend, and, uh, and this is how you start. All is vanity, all is hopeless, everything's a waste. What can man gain by his toil under the sun? Nothing. Generations come and go, doesn't really matter. Is there anything that's really new? No. You get this, this somber, dark, even depressing way to see the world? Do you see it? Does, it? does it grab you differently? Now mark my words, Christians are marked by an unshakable joy, an unshakable peace that we find in Christ. But I would argue that that, that joy is a substantive one. It is not a superficial one. It is not the kind of joy that simply ignores the hard truths of life. It is not the kind of joy that exists by outrunning sorrow, but it's the kind of joy that endures even through actual life. Real pain, real loss. And what I think you'll find here is an invitation, and what I hope I call you to in this time, in this book, is seriousness and a sense of soberness a real and substantive view of your life. And we saw this in the book of Isaiah, that the Bible answers at least three primary categorical questions. It answers many, but but it's aimed at, I would say, three primary things. Namely, origins, meaning, and then the ending. So the questions of where do we come from? And where are we going? And why are we here? are all posited by the Scripture. And this particular book finds itself in the middle. And it's a reflection by a very wise and very affluent person who wants to begin to ask the question, why are we here? What is the purpose? And we saw this in the book of Isaiah, and and I encourage you to begin to think on this as well. My my invitation for you is is to really begin to think, why are you here? Is there meaning in this? Because remember, where you believe that you've come from will impact what you do now. Where you believe that you are going will impact how you see today. Your behavior, your beliefs are based upon where in the story you see yourself. Where you believe you're from. It dictates even superficial small things like what kind of language do you speak? Like what dialect do you use? What version of English do you use? Well, that kind of comes from where you where you were born, right? Doesn't that begin to answer, like, wh- why, why do you speak that language? Because this is where I'm from. There's a sense in which where you come from begins to explain some things about who you are and what you do now. And then we begin to ask the question, so where is this going? Where am I headed? And for some of you, I know you're deeply frustrated at the moment because you do not know the answer to that question. In fact, the most terrifying thing for you to ask yourself right now is where is this going? Where is this going to end? What's going to happen in the days to come? And you know what I'm talking about. The sense of frustration and fear that you experience now is related to the way that you understand where you're going. Christians are called to look to the Scripture for the answer to all three of these questions. We come from God. We bear His image. We are uniquely crafted in such a way that above all of the created order, we believe that God is demonstrating something of himself 
in humanity. Where are we going? We come from God. Where we go to God, you can skip to the end. God returns in the form of Jesus Christ, a, a lamb slain to honor and glorify God by redeeming the nations before his throne. This, this is where we're going to God. This ends with God. It, it comes from the heart and perfection and overflow of the imagination and righteousness of God, and it's restored, and the story ends in the perfection and glory of God. The glory, mind you, remember, according to the book of Revelation, that will outshine the sun, such that one day in the presence of God, there will be no more sun. There will simply be the presence of God that removes all shadows. That's where we're going. And the way that the Bible proposes these things helps us to ask the question that I want to encourage you to ask of yourself. Is there any meaning to now? And if so, where do I find it? The book of Ecclesiastes suggests that since we have come from God and since we go to God, that that means life now is only experienced rightly in and with God. So this phrase, you catch it, it says, under the sun. Now this is a phrase we're going to hear more than 20 different times in this particular book. And just the few 12 chapters that we're going to read more than 20 times, right? So do the math. This is going to show up a lot. This picture of under the sun is the picture of beneath the created order. Beneath the divinity of God. In the created fallen order, what can we find? Can we possibly find meaning amongst ourselves, in and through ourselves? And the answer, vanity. Some of your translations may say meaningless. All is meaningless. The ESV that I'm reading now uses the word vanity just because the word meaningless just doesn't really fit into this. There's, it's using a superlative. Did you catch that? Vanity of vanities. We see this elsewhere in the Old Testament when we, when we refer to uh, some, some covenantal and and some, some language uh, about the temple of God as the holy of holies, right? Of all the holy places, this is the holiest. It's a comparative language, and it's superlative language. And so the same thing is here, this, this picture of all things are vanity, not just vanity, but of all the wasteful things, of all the, of all the useless things, this is the most, all of it. All of, the, all of existence, what, what do we find by looking for satisfaction, by looking for meaning under the sun? Nothing. And of all the nothingness, of all the meaninglessness things, this is the most meaningless. Now, a couple of things will start to happen as we dig through this, okay? So for those of you that thrive on, on getting over things, getting past things, and getting to the part where you feel better. This is going to frustrate you. This is, this is going to frustrate. This is going to force you and me to begin to contemplate the more sobering realities. Things like failure and loss. Things like crisis and devastation. And it's going to push you into a place that I, I, want, I want to comfort you and encourage you. I love you. I wouldn't drag you through this if I didn't think that this was ultimately not going to help you and point you towards something greater. The satisfaction that Ecclesiastes will get us is kind of like the satisfaction of fasting. It's kind of like refraining from something to the point that when it comes, you're filled with joy as you experience. As you experience it. It's, it's kind of like a, an appetizer, if you will. Granted, a long and kind of arduous and painful appetizer, but, but the hope is coming. The, the trust that we find fulfilled for us in God is there. 
But it's going to make some of you who are maybe more chipper and cheery a bit uncomfortable. So hang with me. I promise you. If, if, you'll, if you'll begin to kind of sacrifice the short-term cheeriness and the superficial happiness, you will receive, I believe, a greater, a more substantive and eternal joy. Now for the rest of you, that you're much more somber in reality, or you're already kind of a, uh, you're kind of a depressed person. You're, 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 you're typical, uh, your typical mood, your typical kind of MO is to, is to be more dark and dreary. Okay, you know who you are, and I know what you're thinking right now. You're like, you're sitting around there going like, welcome to my world, right? This, like, I just re- I read the first 11 verses, and, that's, and some of, I know who you are. You wanted to say hallelujah. You were like, yes, I've been trying to say that all along. What are we doing, right? You're a Grinch, you're a, I get, I, I'm, there, I, I'm there at times as well. I, I really love the wisdom literature, particularly the Psalms, because you have friends uh, like David, uh, Solomon's father, who, who, who experienced, I believe, both, right? He's like, he's like, why, O soul, are you downcast? Trust in the Lord. Like, how, I mean, how, you got multiple personality disorders showing up in the Psalms. Have you seen this? One minute he's like, you know, why, O Lord, have you forsaken me? And the next minute he's like, trust in the Lord, he'll redeem you. I mean, I, I don't know how your prayer life works or how you think, but, but th- that's how I tend to experience most of the world. Like, yes, 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 no, no, the worst of the worst and the best of the best. So, so I know this is going to draw a lot of us out of our comfort zones. But I would encourage you, a greater and deeper joy emerges. For to look for meaning to look for satisfaction, to find identity apart from God, is to experience the sense of failure that Solomon relays to you and me. It's vanity. It's meaningless. That word, that word, uh, the Hebrew word hevel, is what you'll find here. It's a, it's a really interesting word. Um, it's a, a really, a really kind of fascinating word. And it's onomatopoetic. So if you're a, a language or, or you're kind of like a grammar nerd like me, you're going to get excited about this. But like an onomatopoeia is, is a kind of word that its pronunciation, the way that it sounds, is part of its meaning, right? Like it's, the medium is the meaning. Like the way that the word sounds, the, the way that you form the syllables, begins to give ear and, and give knowledge to its own definition. So we see this in the word like, the word like sizzle. Right, the way that you use your dental syllables in that already begins to give you a picture of what sizzling is. There's a sense in which just the word starts to give you an idea the way that it sounds into what it means. This is true here as well. Hevel. The, the picture is, is meant to be something of like wind that blows. The psalmist used this word a couple of times and it describes the same kind of picture that a human being's life is like hevel, and it's translated a breath. A breath. Now, there are seasons and places in the world where if I describe to you what a breath looks like, you would look at me with a blank face. Now, in South Dakota, in January, we know what our breath looks like. So this, we're, we're, we're tapping into something here, this, this sense of the, the, the nature of life and the nature of what the, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, the preacher, the, that Solomon is trying to teach us, we have an advantage. When he says that this is like a breath, it is fleeting. You know what that's like. 
Imagine that, just a moment, you walk outside and you, and you see your breath, and there's a mystery that takes place, because you normally can't see your breath. It, it's fairly invisible. But for a moment, a brief moment, you see it. And in a moment, you, you, you kind of, and just, just for that moment, you understand a little bit about your own breathing, don't you? It's like, oh, I, that's, oh, I get, and then it's gone. It's immediately gone. And so what he's trying to tell us here, what he's trying to give us, I, I, I apologize, this is it. This is the best I could come up with. This, this is literally the best word. Life is poof. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. I know, I have lots of degrees. That's, yes, life is poof. That's it. I, there's a sense in which, like, poof. There's this, whatever, maybe, I was thinking, whoosh. There's an onomatopoeic understanding of the way that something dissipates. Whether you're picturing, when I say poof, if you're picturing like Casper the Friendly Ghost disappearing, if you're picturing, I, I, I picture like, I don't know if you remember some of the great cartoons before they became like computer generated. They had to come up with creative ways to, to illustrate and convey things going on. And then and like you can picture like Bugs Bunny or someone else, I don't know, maybe, maybe Animaniacs or wherever you jumped into the picture, right? I don't know how old some of you are, right? Uh, but like there's a sense in which they would, they would run away and, and the illustrator to, to show you how fast the person left. You, can you picture it? left a little bitty illustration, just a little bitty something, just a little, little thing. I would argue a biblical thing I call poof. It's, it's going away. What happened? <laughs> that seriously happened. That seriously just happened. I can see the, I don't know if the TV is turned off or let's see if it's, maybe it's just, this is, that's, I don't know, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. Let's, let's, <laughs> People, people podcasting this sermon will not appreciate what just happened. The words life is poof. Just, wow. I think we should like, thank you, the Holy Spirit there, right? This is, life is this. It's, it's dissipating. It's fleeting. I'll, I'll try it again. There it is. Get it while it's hot, right? Watch it while it's there. There's, there's a sense in which all of these things that the, he begins to contemplate are on their way out. They're fleeting. They're dissipating. They're on their way to not existing. They're on their way to disappearing. I want you to see where he comes upon this. So let's begin to kind of identify some terms, define them, and it will just, I think, set a course to make you really begin to pray for how this might be actually something that encourages us. So if, there, that, there, my marker just went poof. So, 1 Kings, if you want to join me there, 1 Kings chapter 3, and I encourage you, as we're reading through even uh, the majority of Ecclesiastes, the first several chapters of 1 Kings will be a great insight because they're the narrative version of the life of Solomon. What he did, what he accomplished, we'll begin to unpack those for the weeks to come. But, but as you and I are reading through Ecclesiastes, I encourage you to do it. It's, it's something you can read in roughly, uh, I mean, uh, it, this depends, but anywhere from about 40 uh, to about 70 minutes, you can read the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes. So it can be done. If you, you know, chip away how much time you've got to read through it. But then the first several chapters of 1 Kings tells the story of Solomon that, that lays for us a groundwork. And here we are in verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Remember that, that phrase, Solomon made a marriage alliance. You're going to want to pay attention to that. It, it kind of plays out as a pretty important theme for the life of Solomon, okay? It says that he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So he's a builder, makes stuff. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no 
house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. So Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only this one thing. He sacrificed and he made offerings at the high places. You see, Solomon apparently walked in the statutes of the Lord, but he also did something very interesting. He was an idolater. And so we have to define those terms. I believe that this is probably the the best way to do it. One of my favorite dead theologians was a pastor, scholar by the name of A.W. Tozer, and he describes it this way. You'll hear me say this often. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. So like when I say idol, the, the first, because it's not a word we use often, it's certainly not a word we use in such a, you know, like in a bad sense, like, like I won American Idol, like I'm the American Idol. We wouldn't think that's a bad thing. We would be like, congratulations on being America's idol, right? That, that would be a good thing. But, but for the purpose of, of understanding this, we, we find ourselves in a historical, confessional, Protestant tradition in which we believe that declaring the gospel transforms people's lives. And one of the things that we see over and over and over again, that, that as, as, these, as a confessing church, confessing the gospel, believing that, that Jesus really transforms lives, that they're really born again in supernatural way into an eternal family, means that we talk about a few different things. The end of 1 John He tells them, simply says, little children, like if you read the themes of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he closes with this eerie thing. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, what's an idol, you would say? In the most primitive sense, you can picture an idol as like, I don't don't know why I think this, but we we often just kind of think of a primitive thing, like maybe a a man-made or or like an artifact or something like a a golden monkey or a golden calf, literally, in the book of Exodus. Something that you would fashion for yourselves and and then you ascribe value and you ascribe worth to it and you worship it. You exalt it above its rightful place. Now that sounds silly, right? That sounds ridiculous. Who would do that? I mean, who would build their house around a certain thing, right? Like who would, you know, we wouldn't, organize our furniture around a particular thing, right? We wouldn't, I don't know, plug something into the wall, hang it on the wall, attach it to antennas, satellites, or cable, and then arrange the furniture around it. We wouldn't do that because that would be primitive and cryptic and archaic, right? We wouldn't do that. But for these people, they would have kind of maybe fashioned for themselves something that they would worship. And Tozer gives us a really unique insight into this. Because if you maybe think that, oh, I don't do that. I don't build my life around things that are not God. Then Tozer gives us some interesting help. He says that in in the end, idolatry is really just entertaining any thoughts of God that aren't worthy of him. God, the creator and sovereign Lord of the universe, is, is is not a golden monkey, a golden calf that can be fashioned. He's not a God that Acts tells us that it is in any, any way subject to humanity. He's not a God created by human hands. He doesn't even need human hands. And so we're meant to, as we look to God for help, as we look and trust in Him, begin to think about, we're meant to begin to reflect on the things in our lives that cause us to believe something about God that's simply unworthy of Him. Even to entertain Entertain the notion of something about God that's unworthy of him. It's unbiblical. It's untruthful. This is a form of an idol. That is to even begin to think, that this is the way this plays out typically in our culture, I would say. The greatest form of idolatry is a form of justification. 
We look at sin and we go, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Oh, yeah, I've sinned, but everybody sins. I mean, everyone does it. There's not, I shouldn't particularly be grossed out or, or, or I shouldn't particularly despise it. And I would argue that's, that's one of many ways in which you're entertaining something about the holiness of God that's untrue. You're entertaining thoughts of God that are unworthy of his actual holiness. That sinners in the hands of an angry God cannot last. That sin precludes the possibility of presence with God. He is too holy. He is too perfect. It would begin to cloud and it would begin to defame him for a sinner to be in his presence. And to entertain any thought other is a form of worship of something other than God. To entertain thoughts of God that are unworthy of him. So this is a theme that you will find throughout Ecclesiastes. And this man, Solomon, begins to reflect because we find out he's actually very wise, he's highly experienced, but it says here, right, the introduction to who he is in 1 Kings is that, oh, by the way, he regularly entertained thoughts of God that were unworthy of him. He regularly looked for meaning and for purpose outside of God. One of my favorite quotes from Soren Kierkegaard, this is a, a more recent Christian theologian. I don't recommend everything that he has said. It's very interesting at times, but I would at least say this is one of my favorite. You'll hear this even show up in the, in the way that I explain this. Sin is building our identities and self-worth on anything other than God. If you, if you find your sense of meaning in life and anything other than God, then you are committing a sin. You are entertaining thoughts of God that are unworthy of him, therefore rebelling against him. And to find your self-worth and to find your identity and build it on anything other than God alone. Remember, He's where we've come from. He's where we're going. And so therefore, He is our identity. He is our life. He is, according to the New Testament, in Him we live and move and have our being. He's the thing that sustains us and holds us together. Christ, the mercy of God made manifest for us, is the thing that allows us to even exist. All of creation culminates in this. And to find your identity in anything else is to land where Solomon leaves us for 12 full chapters. Meaningless. It'll feel great for a moment. It'll feel fantastic. It'll feel substantive. And in the end, it will poof. And the joy and the happiness that these other things offer dissipate like your breath on a cold day. And the only lasting meaning comes from finding our existence and self-worth in God alone. Our worth is only what God gives to us. We are created beings. This is who we are. And Solomon, we come to find out, regularly, apparently, and we'll see this play out for the entirety, we'll, we'll reference this back for the entirety of Ecclesiastes, is lamenting the ways in which that he has not found satisfaction under the sun. That phrase, under God, that is, that is apart from God, that is the divine being of God who clearly exists over reality, over existence, over the sun. He's the one who sets the sun in place. But, but to look for satisfaction under the sun, to look for meaning on this side of broken and sinful reality is to find poof. So Solomon, it says, love the Lord. And even though he was an idolater, God blessed him. And 
God, as many people seems to do, uses very flawed human beings to accomplish his purpose. Verse 5, it says that, that Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what you shall give. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father. That's saying something. Who's talking about their dad, right? Who was an, idol, an idolater to the point where he was an adulterer and a murderer, right? So this, that's saying something when you say, God, you've loved my father who killed people and stole other people's wives, right? Because he walked before you in faithfulness, that is repentance, turning away from his sin, in righteousness and an uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept him, it was kept for him, this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. That is himself. And now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Now, verse 9, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I might discern between good and evil. Who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping your statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Did you catch that? He had an opportunity to ask God for one thing, and he answered rightly. He chose wisely. He asked God for wisdom, that he would be able to discern things with the mind of God. And God granted him this. And the greatest, most ironic story in the Bible emerges. Where God grants this wise man more wisdom, more wealth, and we find ourselves in the book of Ecclesiastes, probably at the end of Solomon's life. So much so that sometimes the language is different in the book of Ecclesiastes more than any other book of the Bible. Probably someone was helping him write it. I suspect my own theories that he probably couldn't write anymore. And someone was helping him put his thoughts into words. Maybe even thoughts about how his kingdom, as we see later, was being torn apart by his own idolatry. And the greatest ironic story emerges, right? The wisest man that ever lived begins to, by means of his own idolatry, do some of the most unwise things any man has ever done. It says that he was given all of these amazing things. He had riches, he had wisdom, he had knowledge, he was a genius, he, had, he apparently was extremely charming. We'll see in the days to come. Like he, he married 700 women and had 300 mistresses, concubines, right? So here's what one, one commentator put it this way. If you took Hugh Hefner... Okay, and then you took like Bill Gates and, and then you took like Stephen Hawking and rolled him into one guy and then you made that one guy like Pope, elected him president and made him emperor over everything. Now you begin to realize who Solomon is. Like he, he, he's all of that. There's not anybody in our culture that like is that, right? There's, there's not that and, and he's got it all. 
We'll see in the days to come as we dig through this, he begins to find satisfaction because he's, he has access to it. He can do whatever he wants because more than any other person in the world, God has granted him almost everything the human being and the human heart could desire. Everything. Everything you could dream of. And yet the introduction that we just read is probably one of the most somber and depressing openings that exist in the Bible. All is vanity. All? All. It's meaningless. One of my favorite quotes, this isn't the Bible, but I, I love this modern prophet because it's hard to listen to people when they, when they speak on certain things. But Jim Carrey puts it this way. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. You see, he's, he's kind of alluding something that we, we probably give credence to, right? If you're the kind of person who likes to learn the hard way, Ecclesiastes is for you because it's, it's the words of a person who learned everything the hard way, experienced everything, and at the end of it looked back and said, by the way, don't do any of the stuff that I did. And it really takes a person like this to say that. Because I can stand up here and tell you that, right? I can tell, tell you, like, you know, being rich and famous won't satisfy you. It won't really make you full of joy without end. And I can say that, and you can go like, well, of course you'd say that. You're neither rich nor famous. Your words have no validity. And so, so I, I kind of have to at least kind of pile on to those words something like Jim Carrey, a man who is rich, is famous, has in his own field kind of risen to the top. Pretty amazing guy. A couple of bomb movies I don't recommend for anybody, but other than that, pretty funny guy. And yet he's standing there saying like, you know what? Careful what you wish for, because you'll find that if you get what you wish for, it doesn't actually satisfy you the way that you want it to. And along comes, again, part Stephen Hawking, Hugh Hefner, Bill Gates, and comes and says, by the way, I've had it all. And in the end, under the sun, on this side of God's presence, it's all meaningless. Here's what I think this means. I'm going to kind of land on these thoughts. I hope that my own particular application for the next few weeks will look like this. Christians ought to be the most serious people. Uh, we don't find joy in Christ because we simply hide from suffering. But instead, we find joy in Christ because we see what God does through suffering. Right, so we're not the people who avoid death and suffering. We take it very seriously. After all, have you seen the, the, the logo uh, that the first people voted on for our organization? Have you seen it? It's a cross. A method of torture to the point of death. And if any group of people ought to take suffering and hardship seriously, like Solomon here is doing, it ought to be us. We're the people who don't try to avoid suffering, and as we walk through this text, I hope we begin to contemplate its weight and begin to weigh out and measure the consequences of sin. I think what you also find is that Christians ought to have the greatest amount of empathy. Because we're honest with ourselves about how difficult life is, because we are honest with ourselves about how seeking joy apart from God ends in failure, there ought to be no more empathetic group of people 
When people hurt, we ought to immediately see the cross, see our own experience, and then rush to their aid to love and care for them and point them to a deeper, more satisfying, and more substantive source of joy. Christians ought to be the first ones to begin to understand what it means to experience loss because we're the ones who celebrate Good Friday and we call the worst day ever good. Why? Because not by avoiding suffering did Jesus enter in, but by going straight through it and wearing it for you and me do we celebrate Easter Sunday. I think you'll also find this. Christians ought to be the hardest people to offend. Here's what I think this means for us. Like, If you find your identity in these things that Solomon is going to systematically disintegrate, he's going to systematically begin to dissect and deconstruct for us, if you find your identity in those things, in accomplishment, in wealth, in notoriety, in in any other thing than the gift that God has given you in Jesus Christ, his own mercy and image for you and for me, for the glory of his name amongst the nations, if you find your, your identity in anything else, it will be a failure. And you know what you'll also see? you'll be incredibly easy to offend in that thing. If you find your identity in your work, do you ever notice how sensitive you are when people imply that maybe you're not working hard enough, maybe that you didn't do a good job? If you find your identity in relationships, whether it's a spouse or a girlfriend, boyfriend, or a friend, you ever notice how sensitive you are when anyone implies that you're not being a good friend? Because when you find your identity in that thing, boy, you have to protect it with your life, don't you? And if anyone comes in and begins to undermine it, you have to fight them off as best you can. The way I would kind of begin to unpack this is like, what are the things you're the most sensitive about? Like, what's the thing that no one's allowed to talk to you about? What's the thing that if I called you on it, you wouldn't be friends with me anymore? I want to warn you. That's the thing that Solomon is saying is meaningless. And it's actually God's mercy for him to send people like me and others to begin to loosen your grip on that thing so that you would release its inability to to give you joy and find the joy that God who brought you into this world and will carry you into eternity can only give. One of the ways I would ask is, like, what are you lying about? And if you really be honest with yourself, like, what are the things that you lie about? What what are you willing to lie for? Are you willing to lie so that people won't think you're that great? I mean, like, to keep people from thinking that you're not that great? Well, then, friend, you're finding your approval and identity, or you're finding your identity and you're worshiping the approval of others. What would you lie about? Would you lie to cover your tracks? If you made a mistake, would you lie to cover your tracks? You're probably lying because you're secretly worshiping something else and you're terrified of the truth. This is one of the greatest litmus tests. I, I, I've seen this before. Like, I, I shared this with you. I, I was kind of raised a liar, and God saved me out of this. But I, I, a few years ago, I was uh, I was walking through the grocery store, and I and I picked up an orange, and it was a Cara Cara orange or a Cara Cara. I don't know what it is. It's a and it has like pink and purple flesh on the inside. You've seen this? Okay, I didn't know what it was. But this older gentleman walked up to me, uh, probably in his 60s, and just very kind of like a sage goes, "Are you familiar with those oranges? 
you know what those Caracara oranges are? And I go, yeah, 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 I know what they are. I know what they are. I got it. I know what they are. He goes, yeah, they're the ones with the pink flesh. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he walked off, and I was like, I had no idea. I did not know there's pink inside this. What? It's an orange. That doesn't, right? And I realized something about myself. I was willing to lie. Why? Just because a guy I don't even know, a person I don't I have no reason to impress this person. What's, what's going on? You know me. Even now I'm trying to impress you. Because I tend to worship the approval of others. And I will lie and sacrifice anything for that idol. What's the thing you lie about? And I would argue what we find is to come to the end of that and find the truth that God's love for us is not in those things at all. And that God's care and value in us has nothing to do with those things. That he has in fact given us the possibility of truth being the thing that sets us free. I want to encourage you as you begin to dig through this, you begin to understand, understand I, I think we're going to be the, I hope, the most difficult people to offend. You'll have a hard time catching us in a lie because we're so comfortable with the truth. Even, I would argue, even if it's an uncomfortable truth. Because Christians ought not fear the deepest questions. Of all people, Christians should be the least likely to be afraid of words like the one Solomon gives. And when he comes and he says to you and to me that the thing that you're doing might very well be meaningless. It might very well be a waste of time. In fact, it might be a distraction from what God really intends to grant you, to give you joy. Then we of all people are the most comfortable with those serious kinds of conversations. We're comfortable with it. Because one cannot find satisfaction under the sun. One cannot find joy or meaning on this side of the sun. On this side of broken, fallen humanity. One cannot find joy. One cannot find meaning. Instead, one finds vanity. But friend, there is one who came from beyond the sun. And he came from the holy of holies. He crossed over time and space to identify with this meaningless and, and frustrating thing that you and I call life. The thing that seems to carry us around and around in a circle. The thing that seems to always repeat itself. The thing that always seems to promise joy and then leave it like a carrot hanging out just beyond our reach. There is one who came and he has borne our sorrows, borne our suffering. He has crossed to this side of the sun so that now joy can be found in him. Such that now we sing all our strivings cease. We no longer look and hunt and try for the thing that blows away like the wind, but we receive it and we find that it is a gift that God has given us freely in Jesus. Here's the hardest part. Just like Solomon, some of you will have to learn the hard way. Some of you will look for meaning and things other than God's gracious gift to you. And all I can tell you is this. When it fails, when it falls apart, we'll still be here. I love you. And when that thing fails, I won't gloat. I will have great empathy. And I'll be here, hopefully, 
with a group of people to point towards a greater gift, a greater and more eternal joy that can be found in Christ alone. In a moment here, I'm going to pray and kind of wrap up our time together. And I, I want to challenge you even as this, like, uh, the thing I'm going to pray for is a difficult thing. Would you and I, let's resist the urge even today as we wrap up. We're going to sing and celebrate God's love. But would you, would you resist the temptation to run quickly back into superficial joy? Right? Is it possible that even before we walk out of this building, will we resist the temptation to say, how are you doing? I'm fine. And leave it at that. Is it possible that we begin to ask God to remove our fear of the deeper, more substantive things because we know that we have a hope that is beyond them? Let's pray for that together. God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for the enduring love that you have demonstrated for us in Jesus Christ. Uh, For many of us in this room, we would like to find meaning. We would like to find approval we would like to find achievement and worth outside of you so if there's any in this room and maybe they're just on the the heels of a a great failure a great disappointment maybe if there's any in this room and and they're just feeling the the weight of living life on a treadmill that's never ending uh, would you begin to take these moments and and use them as as an opportunity to open their hearts up to the possibility that there is an enduring hope, that there is a gift that you have granted us in Jesus, that if we begin to receive by faith, our burdens are lifted, a grace unending is poured out for us such that we cannot even boast about it ourselves. For those of us in this room that maybe we've heard this good news that God has granted us meaning and hope, But the truth is that we still hold so tightly to other things and we secretly just want to find meaning. We want to find substance. We want to find our value in the things that we want to accomplish for ourselves so that we get the glory. Would you you begin to call us to repent of these things? Uh, Would you allow us to loosen our grip on these superficial things that have no hope of granting us eternal joy and granting us an appetite an insatiable appetite for you and you alone. Only you can do this in Jesus Christ. Amen.